That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by the great Seth Dillon. Seth is the CEO of the Babylon Bee. That's fake news you can trust. So we're very excited to bring on Seth. But before we get to Seth, I want to talk about foreign policy a little bit. Specifically, I want to talk about what's going on in the Far East. As Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi gears to leave for Asia. And as of the time of this recording, it is not entirely clear whether she's going to stop by Taiwan, otherwise known as the Republic of China. But it does seem like as of now, she is going to follow through with her plan. So a CNN headline as of Monday, August 1st, quote, Pelosi expected to visit Taiwan, Taiwanese and U.S. officials say. We'll have clarity on that by the end of the week within the next few days for sure. To kind of just refresh the listeners on the controversy here, it was leaked, and I can't remember exactly how it was leaked. I'm not really sure if we know how it was leaked, but it was leaked that Pelosi intended to go to Taiwan on her trip to the Far East. And China, to put it mildly, that's the People's Republic of China, that's the communist regime based in Beijing, has not been happy about this. They have put out increasingly militant statements culminating with their recent rhetoric towards the end of last week, where it seems like they, it doesn't seem like they actually are, threatening to shoot down her plane, to shoot down the plane of the Speaker of the U.S. House if she lands in Taipei and meets with the officials there. So to kind of just set the table here, because China-Taiwan is an issue that is going to be a major issue. Americans are going to have to care one way or the other about this over the next few years here. So the Chinese Civil War in the aftermath of World War II Basically, to kind of oversimplify matters, you kind of had the nationalists on the one hand and the communists on the other hand. Long story short, the communists prevailed. That's Mao Zedong. And the Communist Party has been leading China ever since then. Uh, you know, just how devoted to Marxist, Leninist, communist thought the current iteration of the Chinese Communist Party is, is a matter for debate. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, back when he was the chairman of the party in the 80s, tended to, quote unquote, liberalize the market economy a little bit there. But it's a, it's still a totalitarian, authoritarian state, to put it mildly there. I mean, there, there were these just harrowing, harrowing images out of Shanghai during, during the most recent bout of, of lockdowns there, where they, if I remember correctly, they're blaring these sirens citywide, saying, like, control your soul's desire for freedom. I mean, you know, George Orwell, call your office, right? I mean, pretty crazy stuff. So basically, in the aftermath of the Civil War in the 1940s, the the nationalists effectively found founded a, a renegade government in the island of tai, Taiwan, which is across the Taiwan Straits. Taiwan is not a particularly large island. It is roughly geographically speaking the size of the state of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken there. And formally speaking, Taiwan calls itself the Republic of China in contrast to the People's Republic of China, which, of course, is the sprawling, gargantuan, massive country based in Beijing with its capital. For decades and decades and decades, China has, again, when I say China, I'm just 
simply referring to the People's Republic of China, Beijing has wanted to reincorporate Taipei, has wanted to, has openly talked about the fact that Taiwan is and should be considered part of China. It's not that that different, I guess, than the way that Putin and Russia thinks of perhaps Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, some of these kind of former Soviet states. It's, it's a little different. I don't want to oversimplify matters. The, the history here obviously is region specific and complicated. But long story short, that's the way it's been. Now, the, the United States, ever since President Nixon visited Chairman Mao in Beijing in 1973, and really kind of culminating in the signing of the Taiwan Relations Act under President Jimmy Carter in 1979, kind of over the course of the 1970s, has had what I, I guess would be considered a, a soft adoption of the so-called One China policy. The One China policy, uh, as Beijing would like that policy to be adopted across the world, basically views one indivisible Chinese state, which really has Taiwan as part of it, where, Ty, where the island of Taiwan is part of that state. I say a soft One China policy because the U.S. also signed the Taiwan Relations Act which basically requires the U.S. to prophylactically provide Taiwan with with military aid and services. And, you know, to this day, Taiwan is not a formal nation state as far as the United Nations goes and things like that. But it does, you know, does have various levels of observer status in most of these transnational institutions and things of that nature. On a, on a personal story, I can kind of tell you guys, actually, the summer of 2014, my first year of law school summer, I was working on Capitol Hill for Senator Mike Lee of Utah, a wonderful, great patriot, Senator Mike Lee. We actually had one night where our whole office was invited to the Taiwanese consulate. I think it was called the consulate. It's definitely not called an embassy because, again, Taiwan is not formally recognized as a nation state. But it was really great. We had a, and, and really over the, you know, the past 30, 40 years, Senator Lee is not an outlier there. A lot of kind of Republicans, free marketeers, basically anti-commies, people who hate the commies, for lack of a better term, tend to cozy up to Taiwan because Taiwan um, you know, rightly to an extent is viewed as kind of a, you know, a bastion of kind of a more market economy with some more greater degree of individual liberal, uh, individual liberty, individual liberalism there, certainly in contrast to China. Okay, so all that takes us now to the present time. And to, to suffice to say that our tensions are high right now with, with China. They've, they're probably about as high as they've ever been. We are now two two and a half years after the Wuhan virus escaped or, you know, where did it escape from? The wet market, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who knows, but it came from China. We know that, you know, China is increasingly dominant all across the world. They're militarily active in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, Xi Jinping, who's the, been the leader there, who is approaching kind of Mao Zedong status as far as kind of like a quasi dictatorial reign. You know, he's kind of overseen this Belt and Road Initiative, they call it this sprawling economic, um, uh, economic geographic network of countries and cities. They're building ports in Pakistan. They're all up in the Middle East. They're in the Horn of Africa. They're even getting into the heart of Europe. I mean, as someone who has been to Europe in the past few years, you see these Huawei towers deep in the heart of Europe, Warsaw, Budapest, you name it. And Huawei, like any company in the Chinese Communist Party economy, is not an independent, you know, it's not an independent company. Those companies are all tied to the state. So, again, to fast forward to the, to the present controversy. So, Speaker Pelosi was planning to visit Taiwan again, and it seems like she is still going to visit there. I don't know how it leaked that she was going there, but my basic take on this, my basic take on this is that given the leak, 
given the fact that this leaked, you have, you have no choice. You have to go. You have to go. I mean, at a time that China is increasingly hegemonic in the region, that is, you know, is, is working with, with the North Korean regime, is threatening our allies in Japan, in South Korea, the Philippines, you name it. At a time when Joe Biden is trying to hurry up to ally with Japan, with India, Australia, those four countries forming the so-called Quad Alliance, the name of the game in the 21st century is Chinese containment. Note that I don't say Chinese defeat. My, my mantra on this is, is actually quite a bit different from kind of the, the arch, arch, arch cold warrior types from the 60s, 70s with respect to the Soviet Union. I do not think the goal here should be the quote unquote defeat of China. And in fact, this actually might surprise some of the listeners here. My thoughts on the Taiwan question are ultimately that despite all the prophylactic measures we can and should take, we should arm the Taiwanese to the hilt. More specifically, we should encourage the Japanese to arm up. We should get the South Koreans more armed than they already are. If after all of that, Xi Jinping does send in the People's Liberation Army, I do not think the U.S. should ultimately go to war to defend Taiwan. I do not support sending 18-year-old men to die on the beaches of Taiwan to, quote-unquote, defend Western liberal democracy. We have tried that nonsense. It has not worked, and we should not do it. But, but, given the fact that this leaked, given the fact that this leaked, and now Pelosi is openly talking about it, the Biden administration is vacillating, refusing to take a stance on it, she has to go. Because at this point, given the fact that, that it is leaked that she's considering, for her not to go, man, I mean, at that point, Xi Jinping just might as well send in the People's Liberation Army tomorrow and just seize Taipei. And, you know, that, that would be a mess, to put it mildly. There. But we'll see what it does. Again, as of the time we're recording this, it looks like she is going to go to Taiwan. So a qualified good for you for Nancy Pelosi if she does follow through with that. But let's take it to a quick break. Again, on the other side, we're going to be joined by the great Seth Dillon of the Babylon Bee. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So as mentioned, truly thrilled to be joined this week by the great Seth Dillon. I do say the great Seth Dillon. Seth is the CEO of the Babylon Bee, which if you're not familiar with it, you really, really should be. So Seth, thanks so much for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I guess for the people who've been sleeping under a rock for the past five to 10 years, can you just briefly bring those folks up to date on what the Babylon Bee is? Why don't you kind of elaborate and tell us a little more of the company's origin story more generally, actually? Yeah, sure. Um, the B is news satire. Um, that's a category that doesn't have a lot of prominent or popular names in it. I, I think most people know the onion. Um, you know, the onion has been around for, I guess, going on 30 years now at this point. Um, but we do the same thing that they do. We just do it from a different perspective. You know, we're writing, we're writing news satire from uh, a conservative perspective and a, and a, a Christian worldview perspective. And so obviously we're going to have different takes. Uh, we're going to, we're going to think different things are funny, but we're doing the same project. You know, that the project is to, is to take a look at what's going on in the world, 
um, and, and hold it up in a way where we can uh, basically try to expose hypocrisy, uh, absurdity, double standards, um, mock what deserves to be mocked uh, and do it in a, you know, kind of a fun, lighthearted way where you're exaggerating the truth to make your point. So um, we've been doing that since 2016. Adam Ford is the guy that founded it. He's like this brilliant uh, comic artist that was doing this Adam Ford uh, comics thing online, developed a little bit of a following. Um, and he used that following to launch a satire site that was just different. He thought it would fill a void where, you know, no one was, no one was really getting good comedy. That was like, that wasn't cheesy uh, from a, from a conservative perspective. Um, and so he thought that, you know, there was, a, there was a place for an alternative version of the onion that, that came at things from a different perspective. And he thought that he'd be filling a void if he did that. And sure enough, his site went viral, like right after launching it. So um, the site's been around for six years now. And uh, I took over in 2018 and, and we've just been doing everything we can to, to grow it while dealing with some of these setbacks we're having where we're getting censored or fact-checked or, or whatever, deplatformed for telling jokes. Yeah, so I definitely want to dive in, into that for sure. And, you know, again, for the people who, by some stretch of the imagination, if you're not familiar with, you, you got to check it out. Go to BabylonB.com. I mean, like you, Seth, I mean, I, you know, I'm in so many of these group chats with, you know, fellow conspirators in our wing of the political universe and the, the amount of Babylon B links and screenshots that I get. I mean, it, it's just gotten to the point where it, it's possible I get more Babylon B content. I'm not kidding. You. It's possible that I get more Babylon B content in my group chats than like literally anything else. I mean, like Wall Street Journal, Fox News, you name it. So it really just has become just I, I have to imagine so much bigger and more prominent then when you guys back in kind of the origin days, probably possibly, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I mean, it's just gotten so big. I can't imagine that you guys thought it would ever get this big, but that no, well, listen, I mean, we're actually bigger than the onion at this point. I mentioned wow. them. They're the, you know, they're the kind of the household name that everybody's aware of, at least everybody, at least in my age bracket, I don't think probably a lot of younger people, um, you know, in their, in their younger twenties or whatever have necessarily heard of it or, or read it too much. But um, we have more traffic and engagement than the onion at this point, which is actually, uh, which is remarkable on its own. I never would have expected that we would surpass them in those categories, but it's even more remarkable when you consider the fact that we are dealing with all of these issues. We're blocked on Twitter, you know, all this stuff. We, we're dealing with the censorship stuff, the fact-checking stuff, and they're not. They don't, they don't right. have any of those problems that they're dealing with. So we've surpassed them in spite of that, which I think is, you know, uh, I think a testament to the quality of the content and and the fact that it's resonating with people. So you guys have been sparring with big tech, I think would be an understatement. I'm looking at your Twitter account right now as we're recording. It looks like the last tweet that the Babylon Bee account has sent out is from March 20th, if I'm looking at this correctly. So how exactly did you first get in the crosshairs of the big tech oligarchs? And I guess Twitter specifically is really the platform that's come after you guys most vociferously, it seems, right? I think we've probably had more. We've had more enforcement action against us on Facebook over the years than Twitter. It, we, they just haven't fully suspended us. Um, we, we we're not getting anywhere near the reach that we used to get on that platform. And I know that's not unique to us. There's others who are struggling with the same thing. But um, you know, they made a lot, they made a lot of changes on that platform that have impacted us. But we've been what we what we were facing on Facebook initially was a lot of you know back in 2018 you had this. Um, you had this big conversation that came up about the responsibility that the big tech platforms have for Trump getting elected and, and how, you know, they, they were, 
they were responsible for allowing all of this misinformation to spread and uh, conservative voices to flourish. You had, you know, Daily Wire taking off and, and generating a huge following and Ben Shapiro doing really well, all of that stuff. And there was all this concern that, you know, Zuckerberg got Trump elected by not doing enough to crack down on the spread of misinformation and all of that. So, you know, you had the, the fact checking army was assembled to go out there and uh, and rate false anything that was misleading um, that could, you know, impact elections. And and they started rating our jokes false. So that's really kind of where it started for us. The whole the the. It didn't start on Twitter. It's most recently kind of culminated on on Twitter, but it definitely started with the fact checking. If you go back to 2018, the first notable one was we did this joke about how CNN had purchased an industrial sized washing machine to spin the news in. (laughs) And uh, and it was rated false by Snopes on Facebook. Snopes was one of their partners at the time. They're no longer partnered with Snopes for fact checking, but. Um, they were paying Snopes to fact check jokes like ours and rate them false. And then, and then Facebook would send us a message and say, you know, if you continue to, to push fake news on this platform, you're going to be suspended uh, and demonetized. And so we're like, wait a minute, this is, a, this is an obvious joke. It's a harmless joke and it's an obvious joke. What are you talking about? And so, you know, we, that battle started around that time. So right around the time I got involved, actually. So I, ca- I came in and immediately we were dealing with that nonsense. And in Twitter in particular, the source for this most recent bout, this most recent fight with Twitter is over so-called Rachel Levine, right? Is that, am I mistaken about that? Yeah, yeah. So USA Today named Rachel Levine, who's this transgender health admiral, four-star health admiral um, in the Biden administration. USA Today had named Rachel Levine one of its women of the year. I guess they picked several uh, uh, women that they, that they wanted to highlight as women of the year. Um, and, you know, this is a male person who identifies as being a woman. Um, and so they, they, they picked Rachel Levine for woman of the year. And our joke take on that was to say, uh, well, we pick, we name Rachel Levine man of the year. And um, obviously, you know, that's that runs afoul of the misgendering policy. Right. They, they don't allow you to to refer to someone who identifies as a woman as being a man. Um, that is a unforgivable crime. Um, so, yeah, Twitter. Twitter suspended our account until unless and until, you know, we delete that joke and take it down, the account will remain in suspension. And um, and and we've refused. I mean, the the language that's there, if you look at these when when people get suspended and they require you to delete a joke or or a tweet. It's really bizarre to me that they don't just delete it themselves. They actually have language in there that says by deleting this tweet, you acknowledge that you violated our policy. So they're like. They're wanting you to like admit guilt or wrongdoing Unbelievable. in deleting the joke or tweet. And I'm like, you know, we don't think that we've done anything wrong here. We've made it. We've made a harmless joke for one thing. We absolutely disagree that it's like criminal to misgender somebody. In fact, I, my personal opinion is that it's misgendering when a male person refers to himself as a woman. Right. Um, so, you know, I, there's a debate that should be allowed to be had about all of that. And you should be able to joke about it, but you can't. Uh, and so, you know, they want us to bend the knee. And I do want to explore a little more about how you guys have made the decision to to not delete that tweet and, and kind of take that hit on, on a very principled stance. And then want to get into the fact checking stuff as well. But let's take it to a very quick break. We're with the great Seth Dillon of the Babylon Bee. More with Seth on the other side. Stay with us.
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, Seth, I want to pick up right where we left off, actually. So tell us a little more about how you guys made the decision to to stand your ground. I mean, obviously, you're taking a traffic hit. You're you're presumably taking a monetization revenue hit. But you've decided not to cave in on this particular issue at this particular time. Now, to the extent that you can share with the audience, I'd just be curious to hear more about how you guys arrived at that very principled stance. Well, to go back to what you were saying a minute ago, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, building a following of over a million followers is really challenging and extremely valuable. So, you know, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into that. It's not easy to do. And, and I think, you know, Twitter, Twitter is kind of unique in that it's, it's really, um, it's where a lot of notable people are having discourse with each other and the public. Um, you, you know, there, there are more, there are more prominent people, both the government, both government officials and celebrities who are like kind of actively engaged with each other in the public on Twitter than are, than on other platforms. And so it's, you're really removed from a, from a, a vital um, hub of public discourse by, you know, if you're sidelining yourself from, from a platform like Twitter. And so there's a lot of cost there. I mean, look, you know, we're connected with, with like individuals like Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and, and really, really prominent voices on this platform. That's how we got connected with them. That's how they, that's how they found out who we are and became fans of us and started sharing our content. And so, you know, to, to leave that platform kind of voluntarily where we're saying, you know, look, we could get back on, I guess we delete this tweet, but, but we're not going to, there is a, there is a cost to that. Um, I think really it comes down to what I, what I was saying a moment ago, you know, being, being able to speak the truth, um, comedy allows you to speak the truth in kind of a unique way. Satire allows you to speak the truth in a unique way. I'm not, I'm not for a moment saying that our stories themselves are true. We write fake news you can trust. That's our tagline, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so these are fabricated stories, but they're funny because they're true. Satire is funny because it has an element of truth to it. There's an underlying truth there. And there was an underlying truth that we were trying to communicate when we named Rachel Levine Man of the Year. And so, you know, well, well, the story itself, we don't actually name anyone Man of the Year. It's a fabricated thing. You know, the Babylon Bee doesn't do that. But, um, but there is an underlying truth uh, to, and, and point that we're making there. And I think that we should be allowed to make it. And I don't think that speaking the truth is hate speech. In fact, I think it's, I think it's more harmful, uh, more hateful, whatever word you want to use, to lie to people um, and, you know, and say things that aren't true. And I think it's, it's certainly dangerous when, when platforms like this that have the, the reach and responsibility that they do start enforcing, uh, you know, they, they start actually compelling people to say things that aren't true or that go against their, their convictions. Um, I think that's a really dangerous place to be in. And anybody, whether you have a big platform or not, who, stands up to that and says, no, I refuse to play that game and go along with that because I think that's really dangerous and, and bad for society, um, is, is doing the right thing, is doing a good thing. 
And so, you know, if it, if it, if it costs us something, look, I, I think we're really only in a position to, to take a stand on, on that particular issue because of where we've gotten to. You know, if we were still trying to grow our audience uh, and become a profitable business and develop a following, we probably wouldn't have been able to take that stand because it would have, it would have just killed us. We'd be dead in the water. I think we reached a point, we're fortunately at, at a point where we have a ton of paid subscribers, you know, tens of thousands of people are subscribed to the Babylon Bee and supporting us financially, where we don't really need Twitter. Obviously, we want Twitter and the audience and the connections that it brings, but we're in a position, we've put ourselves in a position where I think we can afford to stand on our principles and say, look, we can take this hit. Yeah, no, and, and not everyone has has arrived at that conclusion. So it's you know I, I appreciate you kind of walking us through and how, how you got to that point. You know, it's interesting. Even if you concede the the, the premise, which I, I'm not necessarily willing to concede, but even if you're willing to concede the premise that the social media platforms can and should be involved in some sort of content regulation, it is such a far cry from you know forcing you to delete a tweet for you know, denying that 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust to saying that Rachel Levine, who is biologically a man, <laughs> is a man for a satirical news site. I mean, like the fact that we are not able to tell the difference, even conceding the premise of content moderation from that that former example to that latter example is just so mind blowing to me. And it, it kind of reminds me of a tweet that I saw just this past weekend from Glenn Greenwald, who basically tweeted out this graphic where all the major tech companies, Netflix, Twitter, Apple, Google, you name it. And he kind of shows the percentage of employee donations to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Twitter, 98.7% of employee donations go to Democrats. Facebook, 94.5%. I mean, all these companies are similar. Google is 96%. So you have to, I mean, you would be literally burying your head in the sand, I think, if you were not able to draw some sort of causal link from those very obvious data points to what we're talking about here. And I guess that raises the obvious question, which is something that I've thought about. I know it's something that you've thought about a lot as well is, well, what do we do? I mean, what do we do, given how important these platforms have become, these communication channels, everything from a Google search to Facebook to Twitter? And I know it's an issue, Seth, that you've been forced to think a lot about, obviously, because of your position at the Babylon Bee. So why don't you talk us through how your thoughts have evolved on the big tech question and what you think that we on the right should be doing going forward with respect to that? It's a great question. It's a big question. You know, I don't um, I'm not going to uh, sit here and pretend that I have all the answers and I know exactly, you know, here's the, here's the action plan. This is exactly what we need to do. Um, there are some things that I, I think we shouldn't do. And I think I'm often asked why we choose to, you know, continue to publish on Facebook or Twitter, why we care about Twitter, you know, if they're so hostile to us, like you said, you know, they're, they're, they're a platform of leftists and they, they don't, they don't like our ideology. They don't like our values. Uh, they don't like us and they would prefer to just have us kicked off um, their platforms altogether. So why would we want to stay on platforms like that? Why not just go to, well, go to these alternatives, you know, that have popped up to, to offer, you know, like some kind of free speech answer to these, um, you know, more heavy-handed censorship platforms, and and I I think the answer to that is that you know you're you're kind of you're sidelining yourself from the discussion. There there is a time and a place for these alternatives, and I think they have, I think they have value, 
um, for what they're trying to accomplish. And there are, there are going to be people who have a voice there that wouldn't otherwise have a voice. So they're, they're doing a good thing, but they're not, they're not a genuine alternative to these platforms where both sides of the conversation are represented. Um, and you know, it's the, the, they are, they are in effect the town square, the public square at this point because of how massive they are, how sprawling they are, and how this is where you know our our our, our primary discourse has moved into the digital realm and is taking place on these particular platforms. And so you know, it's not like you have a physical town square anymore. This is the the digital town square of the modern age. And so um, if you're not in those conversations, then you know you're you're kind of you're you're sidelined, you're you're ostracized. Um, and your and your voice can't be heard. You might be whispering amongst your friends, but you're not being heard by the general public anymore. And and you're certainly not going to get. And the, the, you know, there's a there's an obvious reason why these alternatives will never be as successful or replace um, these primary platforms, the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Google and whatever. And that's because you know, I mean, just think about it. If you create a free speech platform and you say, hey, look. I want conservatives to be able to make jokes like this and say what they want to say and have their opposing viewpoints. Nobody left of center is going to want to be on that platform. They consider that bigotry and hatred. Right. And so they don't want any part of it. So, well, they consider it bigotry, hatred, or misinformation. Anyone who disagrees with them, anyone who, who jokes about things they don't want you to joke about, they're haters, they're bigots, and they're spreading misinformation. And so that's the last thing they want is to join a platform where that kind of stuff is welcome. And so uh, you're all you're going to live in an ideological echo chamber if you just if you if you join those other platforms. So um, there's a place for them. I'm I'm not knocking them, but they are not and can't be an alternative to these existing platforms. So I think the solution, whatever it is, whether it comes from the courts, whether it comes from um, the legislature, and we actually pass laws at either the state level or or make some kind of changes to Section 230, some federal um, legal changes. Whatever the solution is, whatever direction it comes from, um, you know, it, it's going to need to restore balance and and uh, and fairness to these platforms, uh, these main platforms where everybody is present. It has to be forced on the left. They have to be made to deal with the fact that conservatives are allowed to speak and think differently than them. Um, otherwise, you know, they'll never voluntarily go along with a program that gives us a voice. So. I don't. I don't know exactly what the answer is. I think that you know, um, you know, Justice Thomas has, has talked some about uh, uh, about Section two thirty and and how common carrier doctrine may apply there, and that's really interesting. There's a, there's a really interesting conversation we had about that. There's also a lot of state laws that are moving forward. Uh, Florida put one out there that got not, that got shot down. Texas put one out there that got shot down, but is going through this like appeals process. So um, there is legislation that's that's being drafted that would basically make it. Um, uh, illegal for these companies to engage in viewpoint discrimination, which is what they're doing under the guise of objective content moderation. Uh, and I think that's it, it's super clear in our example that this this joke about Rachel Levine, you know, it's baked into their terms of service now that you can't dead name or misgender or whatever. These these are ideological positions that are now in the terms of service of these platforms. And so you can't even you can't debate it or disagree with it. You have to affirm it or you're violating their terms of service. And that's a really problematic place to be at. So um, I, I don't I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I do think that the answer needs to be that these that these platforms, which are in effect, the public square need to be treated more like that in terms of allowing for uh, a free range of public discourse and disagreement. 
uh, rather than, you know, this viewpoint discrimination that's happening now. I think it's well said. And I'm really happy that you flagged the Clarence Thomas writing. I, I remember that vividly. It was April 2021. It was a case called Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute. And he wrote this. It wasn't even that long. It was probably a 12, 13 page, something like that concurrence, basically making a soft argument. It wasn't a hard argument. But it was a soft proposal, kind of just a floating of an idea that it would be prudent to treat these platforms like common carriers, the same way that we have called the, the telecom networks, basically, and the ISPs common carriers. And it, it, it was really well said. And I actually wrote my whole column at the time on that concurrence. So I'm happy that you that you flagged it here. Um, Seth, one, one more question before we let you go, though. I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Snopes and kind of the the the, the fact checking edifice in, in in general here, because that's difficult to extricate from the big tech question to an extent. And it, it, it seems to me like these, you know, the fact checkers, whether it's Glenn Kessler over at The Washington Post, there's this browser extension called NewsGuard, which I, I guess very low ratings to conservative websites for news trustworthiness. Is that kind of the same question in your mind? I mean, should we be should we be trying to treat and regulate, legally speaking, these so-called fact checkers in a similar fashion as the platforms themselves, or is that kind of an independent question? You think? <laughs> it's a good question. I actually saw some debate about this just today, uh, and and you know, there's always concern that's raised. Well, how is how is regulating them going to help? What about the regulators? You know, can you right. trust the regulators? And that's we end up with this like kind of like. Uh, I don't know, uh, infinite regress where, you know, the fact checkers need fact checkers. And then the fact checkers of the fact checkers need fact checkers. <laughs> where does it, where does it end? Um, I, I, I guess I understand, I get what, I get the purpose of fact checking, but I feel like, I feel like fact checking should almost be treated more like an op-ed type situation where, you know, people are kind of weighing in with their opinion that, you know, this is false or misleading, but they're not being treated as like a definitive objective source. Because you know we all see things we all see things through through different lenses and uh, in our various worldviews and we have preconceived ideas uh, that we're that we're bringing to the data that we're analyzing and you know there's there's disagreement we can look at the same set of facts and reach different conclusions and so I, I just I just don't see it working where you can have like objective third parties who give you um, the undisputed truth. And that's why, you know, I think there are basic self-evident truths like two plus two is four and men are men and women are women and can't and can't switch between the two. Um, but there's going to be people who dispute even those. And, and that's something where it, it, it just it should be a matter of debate. You know, if someone makes a false claim, then everyone and anyone should be free to respond to that and refute it and rebut it. You know, the, the answer to that is to is to provide an answer to it. I don't think that it's to, you know, to, to rely. I, I think it was a mistake to go down this path of trying to say that we can have objective third parties come in and fact check. It's obviously a, 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 an abject failure. These these third party fact checkers, they've landed uh, on the wrong side of things so many times. And it, we've seen it happen a lot of times, you know, with our stories or or or, or just in general story, stories in the news where things are rated mostly false that are like almost entirely true. And it's just, it's, it's egregious. So I don't know. I, I kind of reject the whole premise that fact-checking is the answer to misinformation. I think that robust debate is the answer to misinformation. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, I I, rem- I think back to this past weekend. I mean, AOC had this quote referring to Drag Queen Story Hour as the you know the quote unquote great patriots. I mean, look, when, when half of America looks at a drag queen story hour and sees great patriots and the other half of us see something closely approximating child abuse, you know, we really do live in two Americas. And the idea of truth, of a third party being able to kind of dictate the terms and the boundaries of truth just strikes me as deeply fanciful. And that's frustrating, of course, for those of us who do believe in the concept of truth. I mean, the American founders believed in truth. They held these truths to be self-evident. I mean, the the idea of truth is kind of centric to the American conception of self-identity in this entire country. But we we sadly seem to live in a post-truth world. So given that reality- Yeah, well, we do. I mean, and that's that's an excellent point. So, you know, one one of the things that the left tries to do um, is- is to say that you know your your feelings can actually dictate reality, right? Um, you know, if I if I feel like something that you said was offensive, then you know violence has actually happened. I'm I'm a victim of violence, and if I if I feel like I'm a woman, then I am in fact a woman. Um, and you know that when you start when you start letting feelings dictate what reality is and try to insist that feelings are driving reality, then yes, you are, you're, you're post-truth at that point. You've yep. given up on objective truth and you're, and you're looking at, and you're, you're allowing truth to be defined however people feel. And, and in that context, when, when feelings are driving what reality is, you can't have fact checkers. Right. You can't because there is no, there is no standard uh, that the unshifting, unchanging, immovable standard by which you're judging anything. So it just doesn't even work in that context. And so it's, it's really interesting and ironic to me, I think, that the people who are trying to do away with truth are also trying to assert what the truth is by fact-checking everybody that they disagree with. Totally. Well, Seth, we're going to have to leave it there, fortunately, but thank you so much for all that you and the Babylon Bee does to provide us some levity in this very frenzied and chaotic post-truth world. So thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So thanks again to the great Seth Dillon for joining us. So I want to talk a lot with Seth about the big tech question, the censorship question, the fact checkers, all of that, because the Babylon Bee, I, I, again, I cannot emphasize this enough. If for some very bizarre reason you were not familiar with the content, you got to go to BabylonBee.com and check it out. It really is just top-notch material. But to the extent that Seth has found himself wrapped up into the big tech fight, he is a valuable asset in that fight. And it's an issue that I have spoken about for many years, and it's just worth emphasizing how different the conservative conversation, because again, to kind of reorient this podcast, you know, we're six months in now, this is a conversation about the future of the conservative movement. And it is so interesting to note how centric the big tech fight is to what conservatives discuss and talk about moving forward. As recently as four or five years ago, this was not a thing. 
It, it really just wasn't. I mean, I think back to, what was his name? James Damore, the Google engineer, the conservative guy who basically got ran out of Google back in 2017. Well, that was like an early data point. Alex Jones getting deplatformed from social media around the same time, 2017 or so. That was a data point. But even the mentality back then was like, oh, it's just Alex Jones. It'll never happen to me. And you know what? Sure enough, it does happen. Because the fact that it happened to the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, after January 6, 2021, if it can happen to a sitting president of the United States, it can literally happen to anyone. And I, I pressed Seth a little there just to kind of hear his thoughts, to hear him elaborate a little more on how they at Babylon Bee arrived at this decision to not delete that tweet with respect to Rachel Levine winning the so-called Man of the Year Award over at the Bee. And many people, again, cannot make that decision. I have had so many friends. I find it a little bizarre that I have not ever, to my knowledge at least, been suspended from Twitter. Maybe I've been shadow banned or anything like that. So I have not had to make that decision. But I assume that I would not be able to, for if nothing else, like basic, like self-sustaining career reasons, be able to make that decision that that Seth made. But most of my friends end up doing that. They end up kind of just deleting the tweet, caving in, and it does feel like a statement of surrender. But, you know, the policy solution, it was really interesting for me to hear Seth talk a little bit about this Clarence Thomas concurrence from this April 2021 case. He mentioned the Florida and Texas statutes. The Texas statute happens to be a very, very good one. I know that Professor Phil Hamburger of Columbia University Law School, who was one of the top minds, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to big tech regulation, he, I think, helped Texas legislators down there in Austin. It's currently working its way up through the courts. Uh, the specific kind of procedural posture of the litigation is a little too complicated to get into, but suffice it to say, it has not been fully struck down yet. So, you know, we'll see. My, my basic thoughts on the big tech question I guess I kind of outlined it in a February 2021 essay for the American Conservative, where I basically proposed an all-of-the-above solution. And what that entails is some combination of Section 230 modification. I, I favor Section 230 reform rather than outright repeal, which, are, you know, we can get into that in a future podcast, perhaps. But whether it's Section 230, antitrust reform, and common carrier regulation, I think all of these options basically have to be on the table. And the specific remedy or suite of remedies necessarily must be tailored to the platform. So, for example... For something like Facebook, antitrust might make a little less sense because the entire point of Facebook is being connected to your friends. So what the heck is the point of breaking it up? So their common carrier regulation might make more sense. But for something like Amazon, you know, I wrote a long essay for American Affairs Journal in August 2021, I guess it was, on Amazon. And, you know, would encourage you guys to check it out if you want to go into a deep dive on Amazon. And their antitrust actually makes a lot of sense because Amazon is just, they are cross-levering different parts of their platform to prioritize their own pecuniary monetary interests. It's really harrowing stuff. But thank you for listening this week. I'm Josh Hammer, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.